Welcome to the Dwell Church Sermon Archive. Dwell is a family defined by the love of God and committed to giving it away. Here is this week's message. We are starting off our Matthew series today, and uh, he kicks us off with a doozy. She's blaming me, but it's not my fault, all right? It is Matthew's fault. Uh, We either could have done all of these one name at a time, and it would have been easier to read, or we could go through all of them at once, Uh, so we chose that route. Uh, I am very excited. We also gave you a post-Easter gift today. I hope you are excited. We gave you uh, an empty notebook. Man, isn't that great? I feel like people, I saw a lot of people grab it for the first time and open it up and be like, oh, what's written in here? Oh, nothing. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, you actually have the opportunity to write something in there. Now, here's what's interesting. So we here at Dwell really, really believe in uh, the Bible. We believe in Scripture. We believe its power, even in crazy passages like this that are just a bunch of random names you don't know. Um, And we really, truly, truly, truly believe in the power of Scripture. And so if you are willing to hang with us throughout this entire Matthew series, Um, I believe that God is going to use it in an influential and meaningful way in your life. And so one of the things that we're going to encourage you to do throughout this series is just to journal that experience. And uh, we, uh, as you see, we are not scared of reading any Bible passage. Uh, And if you actually hang with us through this entire Matthew series, regardless of whatever kind of gibberish that I say around it, regardless of whatever happens before and after in the gathering, I can guarantee you that you will have at least read through the book of Matthew through this series. If you follow along with us, uh, if you're here every Sunday or at least watch online, uh, just this very, very act of reading through Scripture, I believe, can be meaningful and important in your life. And so here's what I'm going to invite you to do right now. Um, <clears throat> with these journals, here's what I want to ask you to do. First, put your name somewhere. Uh, they are all the same. So uh, I would hate for you to get somebody else's notes at some point through this journey. So put your name maybe on the inside cover, uh, somewhere else, doesn't really matter, anywhere. Um, And then in the first page, here's what I want you to do. I want you to write down important info on the top, and then you can skip down like five lines. So important info should be right there at the top. This is things like dates, who Matthew was writing to, who Matthew was. Uh, We would call this provenance in the biblical world. I don't know if you want to write that big sort of weird word. It's one of those words that looks English, but you pronounce it all French and fancy. Uh, You can write important info, skip down five lines. I'm not going to give it to you all at once, so just sort of be tracking along, waiting for some little nugget like that. Skip down five lines, and then under that, write themes. And under themes, you can go ahead and put the word fulfillment, which is the name of this Matthew series. As you see through, as we go through the book of Matthew, you're going to see a lot of times when Matthew sees things happening in Jesus' life as fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies, and indeed the very story of the Old Testament is completely fulfilled in Jesus' life. And Matthew sort of brings that out and highlights that for us. And now here's the last instruction. I know, I know, I'm preaching, I'm, you know, giving you too many instructions on a journal that is yours. The last instruction, flip to the very last page. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to draw a line halfway, or from top to bottom, splitting the page in half. And on one half, I want you to write hopes. And on the other half, I want you to write fulfillment. And here's the thing that takes this journal from just being something that you sort of learn about and study about and just some head knowledge to actually being something meaningful and life-changing in your life. I want you throughout this, this entire series to be writing things that you sort of hope. These are things that maybe you're asking God for. Maybe these are things that you would hope would happen in the world. And I want you to just list them on that left-hand column under the word hopes. 
So these are things that you are hoping that would happen, maybe in your own specific life, maybe across the world, who knows what it is. And then hopefully, my prayer is that throughout the course of this series, which by the way is going to take us a while, so buckle up, uh, throughout the course of this series, I'm hoping that you'll be able to write in that right-hand column ways in which God has fulfilled those hopes. The same God that fulfilled all of the hopes of the Old Testament through Jesus Christ is the same God that is working and living and active in our lives today. And so I, my prayerful hope is that he's going to fulfill some of that in our own lives today. So um, that's all that I have for you on the journal. Everything else is completely self-guided, completely up to you. You do with it what you want. If you just want to draw funny pictures of me, that is completely fine. Um, we needed to talk about the elephant of the room. I, uh, elephant in the room, or the elephant of the room. I cannot speak today. I am sorry about that. I traveled this past week, and I was on the first plane where they said you could take your masks off. And look what it's done to me, people. This is terrible. I don't know if this is a hot take or whatever, but I, uh, I kind of like the masks on airplanes. They literally got on there and they were like, well, I was sitting there. I was the only one with masks on because I'm a rule follower. And I was looking around. And I was like, what are all these other clowns doing? Are these guys all just rule breakers? What is happening? Of course, I had not checked the news. And the flight attendant comes on first thing. She says, well, I guess you guys have all heard the good news. And they were like kind of some like uncomfortable claps from the back. Like, ah, yeah, sure. And uh, then I, like, I looked around, and I asked the guy next to me, I was like, what's the, what's the deal? And he was like, oh, you don't have to wear masks anymore. And I was like, okay. And I took it off, and they come by for drink service. I kid you not, come by for drink service, my very first drink service without masks on. I order a ginger ale, and she walks up, and she hands it. The guy next to me passes it over, mid-pass, huge sneeze, just, Hachia! and then uh, hands me my ginger ale, and I've been dead ever since. Um, so I'm very, very sorry about that. I honestly think it's like weird and allergy stuff, but um, anyway, we'll make it through. I believe in us. Uh, my first point for this uh, Matthew series and starting through this genealogy is boring, question mark, uh, because, man, this might be one of the slowest passages in the entire New Testament. And it's amazing. If you see some of the other uh, beginnings of, like, what is happening in uh, Jesus' life, a lot of times they hit you with these huge kind of sweeping things, these big, like, here's a great story, here's what's happening in Jesus, let me, like, hook you and engage you. In fact, uh, sometimes I help out, like, assessing new preachers and their preaching and stuff like that, and if somebody opened up with just a list of 30 names, I would say fail, right? Like, you did nothing to engage the audience early on, you get a bad grade, but instead, this is how Matthew actually opens up his gospel. This is what he tells us as most important news. It actually sounds like when uh, your great-great-grandpa answers a question or something, and he's like, well, Myra, we used to call her saucy. Well, anyway, she was my aunt on my mother's side, and uh, after the Depression, they started farming. Oh, what, what was it? Was it turnips? No, no. I think it was rutabagas that they were farming and anyway they started farming those rutabagas so then Harold there was the son and he was a tall man a very very tall man actually and uh, you know what actually I think it was turnips that they farmed right and then it goes on and on you're like grandpa I asked you if you could pass the peas that was my only question to you and here an hour later I'm stuck with this that's exactly what it feels like with Matthew right we want to know about Jesus and instead he's telling us all of these random names that we have no idea who they are. <clears throat> While Jesus was certainly the beginning of a brand new story, he was also actually the ending of another one, which is what Matthew is sort of capturing here. 
These names that sound so foreign and, you know, backwards and weird to us are actually tons and tons of names that would have been exceptionally familiar to people uh, who had grown up in the Jewish faith. These names are names that are scattered throughout the Old Testament. And if you think about it, a lot of times we sort of, looking back, we read the Bible as like one full story, or maybe even we like the New Testament, so that's kind of like one story, and the Old Testament is another story. But if you really were to lay it out, and I think this is true from Matthew's perspective, if you were to lay out the entire story of humanity, what you would see is actually Jesus sort of landing somewhere in the middle. You have like these different phases, and the Old Testament is sort of a phase. And each phase sort of ends, or, uh, begins with like an interaction with God, right? So the first phase begins with God actually uh, creating humanity. He's walking there with the garden, in the garden with them. He is uh, there with Adam and Eve from the very beginning. And then you have the entire Old Testament. Things are not going so great. And this new phase gets ushered in with Jesus Christ. And that's what Matthew is capturing here. So instead of thinking of it as like, you know, the beginning of a story or even the ending of a story, it's actually like right in the middle. And in fact, like the actual climax. If you remember from school, you had like this like standard story arc that most stories kind of follow. Jesus would be right here at the climax. And in fact, I I like to think of it the way that we're actually living is in sort of like the falling action resolution kind of time. This time after Jesus comes and saves and rescues all of humanity, but before he comes again, see third time that Jesus interacts with the world, before he actually comes again to rescue all of humanity and to put his plan into full fruition, into full action. And so what Matthew is capturing here is it's like, hey, this Jesus guy didn't come out of nowhere. He actually comes from a long line of people that are showing evidence of God's work in the world. And if you were a Hebrew living at this time, you may well have known every name on this list. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a brief look at some of the names of the folks on this list. So, uh, Colin, if you could go ahead and throw that first passage back up there. I'm going to take a quick sip of water. Don't you love this? You know, comedians, when they take water, they get to, like, land some huge laugh, and then while everybody's chuckling out, they just So anyway, the way that I was in, and I can't do that, I'm sorry. So um, I'm just going to have to pause, and you guys are all going to have to sit uncomfortably while I do it. Um, anyway, here we go. <clears throat> now, if you were here two weeks ago, then you heard a masterful retelling of basically the entire Old Testament from Wade a couple of weeks ago as we were finishing out Hosea. And I know some of you guys are a little bit disappointed. We've been, we've been hanging out in the Old Testament for a long time. I promise we're not an Old Testament exclusive church. We just believe in the whole Bible, which is weird. Um, so we did Hosea. Before that, there was Judges. Some of you guys have completely forgotten Philippians right in between those New Testament. But man, it feels like it's been a lot. And then here we are right in the New Testament, starting right back in the Old Testament. You can't escape it. And that is true for Matthew's life, too. Now, uh, some of the highlights, you've got Abraham. That's a big deal, right? Uh, That was the first person that God made this huge promise called the Covenant to. You've got David, who was king, uh, probably the greatest king in all of Hebrew history. You've got Jacob, who is uh, Abraham's descendant, who was able to uh, be sort of the father of the 12 tribes. You've got Josiah, who rescued everyone back uh, from when they were in deportation. He actually brought the law back to the people of God just to hit some of the highlights. I feel like if you threw Moses in here, you'd really have everybody that's like of super importance in the Old Testament. I know that's kind of like a big statement, but it's amazing how many of the like great heroes, huge heavy hitters of the faith are in this passage. These are kings. These are rulers. These are leaders of the people. And specifically, if you look there at verse number one, it says that he is the son of David and the son of Abraham. 
So what, today, what Matthew is communicating to Jewish people right here is like, hey, this is not a different God. So first and foremost, this is not a different God than you've been experiencing. This guy is the son of David and Abraham. This is a continuation of what the same God has been doing all throughout the Old Testament. Everything that you've been looking to up until this point is coming to fruition in this moment. He's the son of Abraham as the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that God would bless his offspring and that through them all the peoples of the world would be blessed. He's the son of David, that he might fulfill the prophecy of Nathan to David. We actually see this in 2 Samuel, uh, verse, uh, I'm, I'm missing the chapter. I think we'll throw it up here on the screen, but uh, something, 712, there it is. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. This is a promise made by a prophet to David about his offspring, that now Matthew is making this ridiculously audacious claim, hey, here's the son of David. You remember what Nathan said to David? Here's the fruition of that. Here's the fulfillment of that. Jesus, the son of rulers and heroes of the faith and the greatest people there ever could be. But also, if you're a first century Hebrew in the room right now, then you notice something strange about this genealogy and that it holds for women. <clears throat> now that in and of itself is pretty rare. In fact, as we find like archaeological digs and stuff, we find like old genealogies. They used to keep these things in the temple uh, and it was like a huge deal. In fact, if your family was a big deal, then you had this huge long scroll in the temple and it kept all the list of your names. The temple was destroyed in 70 AD and so we lost all of this stuff. But as we sort of look back, we find them and by and large, these do not include any women at all. It was just uh, the bloodline was traced through the men, and so there was never any women on this. And yet, we see in this passage there are four women, and not just four women either, four Gentile women, which is super strange. Now, for those of you guys who don't know, Gentile refers to it, or the term Gentile means non-Israelite. This is significant because until they married into this family, these four women were all outside of the covenant. <clears throat> They were not a part of the covenant promise made with the people, God, people of God that he would be their God and they would be his people, okay? So you've got this list that includes Abraham, it includes Jacob, it includes David, all of the greatest Israelites that ever lived, and then secretly snuck in there. Not only are they women, but four Gentile women. <clears throat> Let's take a quick look at these. In the first part, uh, we start off with a character named Tamar. In verse, uh, <clears throat> I believe right there in verse 3, it says, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Now, uh, I'm not going to try and spend too, too much time on all of these women. Uh, Tamar is just kind of one of those classic stories. You, you guys have all been there. It's where you like try and find a wife for your son, and then uh, he dies, so you give her to your next son, and he doesn't like her and does something truly heinous that I won't repeat up here on stage. So she dresses up like a prostitute and sleeps with you, and then you have a couple of twins. It's like, I mean, I, you've been there, so I won't uh, land too long, but uh, it's Genesis 38 if you really want to read uh, back on that kind of a crazy story. Let's skip on down to uh, verse 5. Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Now, Rahab is actually the name of a prostitute who was a Gentile living in Jericho. 
And uh, if you grew up in Sunday school, then this is one of your favorite stories because it's super fascinating, though they found a way to sort of politely gloss over the prostitute part. So the uh, Israelite spies sneak into Jericho. It's the first town on the stop of conquest when the Hebrew people are moving into the promised land. And they bust up in there, and uh, this prostitute named Rahab actually helps them out, and she's the only one spared from the entire town. So that's Rahab. She then marries into uh, the Hebrew family. Then we move on uh, from Boaz to Ruth. If you remember, Ruth is a character in the Old Testament who has her own book of the Bible all about her. She is actually a Moabite woman who married into the family of Israel. And finally, sort of by implication, the fifth person that we have is actually in the next set of verses. Uh, You see this in verse 6. Uh, or verse 7, really, it says, And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And if you remember that whole crazy story, uh, basically David was the king. He saw this lady bathing on a rooftop, and then he said to her husband, Hey, go out to the front lines. You're probably going to die, and then I'm going to take your wife. And that's exactly what he did. And that was Solomon's mom. So we've hit all of the hits, I believe, at this point. And I want you to notice that Matthew is doing something here. Something really, really intentional. And the reason why we know that he's doing something intentional, this is not just a random list of names, is some of the lists is actually, it doesn't make any sense. Now, I hope this doesn't sort of shake your understanding of the Bible. They looked at genealogies a lot more or a lot differently than we did. First off, uh, there's no way that his like 14, 14, 14 kind of makes any sense. You remember it says there were 14 generations from here and 14 generations from here. It's not actually true. Uh, if you do the math, uh, the first chunk of people actually has a lot more uh, people in it than 14. And uh, yeah, it just gets difficult to trace. Another thing that's really weird is uh, it says Rahab is the father of Boaz, which probably would have been an interesting thing to note in the book of Ruth, right? Like that would have been fascinating to find out. It turns out there's probably around 200 years in between those two events. So it makes you a uh, question, first off, is Matthew just a liar? You know, is he just one of these guys that's just like, you know, it'd be funny as if I just threw random people throughout this thing. Like, what a, wouldn't it shock him if Rahab was in there or something like that? I don't think so necessarily. And in fact, I'm kind of of the mindset. Now, this is, this is not something to hang your entire faith on or anything like that. And I, I love the Bible, so it might, be, it might come as a shock that I'm like, hey, this is not exactly factually accurate. I kind of think all of these people are probably actually in Jesus' bloodline. Uh, through Joseph, at least. I kind of think that it's like accurate. But I think what's happening here is he's actually bringing things out that are the most important things of, gene- of Jesus' genealogy. And like I said, this was like common practice back in the day. If you find things like written by like Josephus or something like that, you'll find that what they are trying to do is actually convey something important to the people that they're talking to about the genealogy of the person. So whereas we might say, no, we want to know every single name. We want to know exactly who's there. We want to know, uh, you know whose father was whose father was whose father. Matthew here is actually trying to tell us something about Jesus by presenting the names that he chooses to present. It was also very uncommon, if we're thinking about what Matthew is trying to tell us, uh, why he would include women anyway. So uncommon back in the day. Uh, In fact, uh, there's actually archaeological evidence that when Jewish writers needed a woman in a genealogy, they needed to find out who was married to who, they would very often just make up the name. They were like, ah, it doesn't really matter who was married to Jehokani or something like that. We'll just throw in a Jewishy sounding name, you know, like Sarah or Mary or something like that, right? Uh, that was how little typically people put emphasis on them. And yet Matthew here writing one of the most important works of all of history goes out of his way to include Jew- or Gentile women into this story. 
What we have to see here is that he is actually telling a story, one that is more important than actual strict details. You ever met somebody like this who's kind of fast and loose with the details, but the story that they tell is super important? The story that they tell is super meaningful? There's actually this guy that was friends with my parents growing up, and uh, he would tell just like these crazy, crazy, absurd, and hilarious stories. And especially as a kid, I had absolutely no idea what he picked up from like the Reader's Digest or some comedian and what actually happened to him in his life. In fact, uh, well, I say in fact, there's no way of proving anything with this guy. Most likely, he grew up in the same town as Trisha Yearwood and always used to claim uh, that this story about like, uh, oh, I forgot the, the song name, something about the rain or something like that, Georgia Rain was actually about him. That was like the audacious claim that he made. And you know what? To this day, I have absolutely no idea. Like the timeline kind of works out. So maybe he was a nice, good looking guy, I guess. I don't know why you would want to claim that necessarily, but that is what he did. And to me as a kid, I was just like, who is this man? And you know what? It never really mattered. In fact, I, uh, I distinctly remember one time just destroying his story one time because he was just like rolling, rolling, rolling. I'm a kid. I'm listening to this story. I'm like, this is hilarious. This is amazing. And I go, wow, did that really happen? And he just like looks over it, like destroyed his flow. He's like, uh-huh. So anyway, what I was talking about, right? Like, and you guys have all met these people. It's weird <clears throat> that in our current stage of history, I think we have this like uh, predisposition to where if somebody is not completely 100% factually accurate on everything, then we throw out their entire testimony. I and mean, that's what happens in a court of law, right? They're like looking to like catch somebody on something, anything. They're like, sir, it says that you ate a bagel for lunch, but this receipt shows that you actually had a biscuit. Um, so is it possible that you do not recognize the killer as he is sitting right in front of you? Like your memory is suspect, right? And that's not at all how we have always processed truth as humanity. And it's definitely not the way that we process truth back here in Matthew's time. In fact, commentators have suggested that Matthew's hearers and readers would have noticed what he was doing and would have fully expected him to do that. So when it hits modern ears, it feels strange to us. But all of that being said, he here is doing something that is more important than facts. He's telling us something more important than the actual truth of the story. He's telling us something that has more meaning. This guy is kind of fast and loose with the details, masterfully telling the story. And this genealogy weaves together the greatest names of all of Israelite history and some of the lowest, most reviled people in society. In this genealogy are people that walked and spoke with God personally and people that sinned greatly and obviously to everyone around them. In this story, in this genealogy, there are covenant makers and there are Gentiles. In this story, there are kings and harlots. In this story, there are saints, there are sinners. And all of these people, Matthew goes out of his way to tell you these are the ancestors of Jesus. This is where he comes from. And if you haven't picked on the why of all of this, you haven't picked up on that yet, it's simply that Jesus is everything that you want, but nothing that you expect. Jesus is everything you want, but nothing you expect. Man, isn't that sweet? In the same breath, Matthew confidently asserts that Jesus is the heir to David and to Abraham. He is the new and rightful king that should be on the throne 
But we, as Israelites, if you, were, if you were a Hebrew back then, you would say that we are left in the lurch after the Babylonian deportation, but now a king has come. He's going to be a new and better David. He's going to be a new and better Abraham. He's going to be the fulfillment of all the prophecies. The wait is over. He has come. He is here. Get ready, Israel. He is about to do what you've been praying for. He is the fulfillment of all of your dreams. And also, also, his grandma was a non-Israelite prostitute. Also, his grandpa is the bastard son of a murderous king. That's Solomon, by the way. Can we diverge for just a moment for like an admittedly weak example? Imagine if I was telling you about a candidate for president. And I was like, here he is, folks. Uh, His name is Abraham Washington. And he's the direct descendant of George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, because apparently we like him now, Abraham Lincoln, Martin Luther King Jr., and Mr. Rogers. Also, just a side note, it's weird. His grandpa is Benedict Arnold, and his maternal uncle is Saddam Hussein. You guys would be like, ah, I don't know about this guy, right? Like, you kind of sold me on the name at first, but I'm not so sure. That would be very, very strange. Jesus' background is nothing like what you'd expect. Observant readers, right here from the very beginning, observant readers should be asking, is this Jesus going to be the guy that we expect him to be? Is this Jesus going to be the conquering king? The true heir of David, the one who's going to put us back in power, who's going to conquer Rome and show them that we're the best nation on the, com- on the planet? I mean, on the planet. Is he going to be everything that we hope for? Or is he going to be something different? Is this guy going to be what we expect? That's what observant readers should be asking. And I think if you're like next level kind of thinker today, you know, one of those memes where, like, it's, you know, the guy's head explodes by the end, you know what I'm saying? Like, normal reading is like, hey, is this Jesus who we expect he's going to be? I think sort of like the next level of that is asking the question, is this Jesus who I make him out to be? You already saw that Matthew had complete control and freedom to actually tell this story the way that he wanted to. This is the way that he chose to do it. It should make us ask him questions about the Jesus that we think when we think of Jesus. Because here's the deal, not many of us, when we're asked who Jesus was, would respond that he's the grandson of the prostitute. And yet, that is exactly what Matthew is telling us today. Jesus didn't come from a completely royal background. Uh, He also came from a sort of broken and dirty background, showing us that God has always and will always use unlikely people for his glory. And for Matthew, this is an important piece of the puzzle. Uh, The next and final point that I want to talk about from this passage is that Jesus was adopted. Um, If you've done Advent with us, I am very sorry. This is, I don't have many like hobby horses, I think. I mean, you guys listen to me preach, so maybe you'd say that I do or something. This is one of them. If you've done Advent one year and three years with us, whatever it's been, you've probably heard me talk about this. Joseph gets the shaft, y'all. Like it is not fair how little we pay attention to Joseph. I mean, we've got uh, all these different things pointing towards all the other parts, but nothing for Joseph. In fact, I have a little Tykes Nativity set at my house. We set it up every year. It is complete with wise men. It has shepherds. It has Mary. It has an angel. It has baby Jesus, of course. It has a donkey. It even has a cart for fruit for some reason. And it has a cow. But there is no Joseph in this little Tykes set. Is that not strange? 
is 20 cents of plastic. And they didn't even include it in there. Why do they have a fruit cart? Like in this manger where they actually like, you know, plying their wares or something like that? No. And yet Joseph is just sort of left out in the cold. I've always had trouble with this. Matthew goes on and on and on with this genealogy, which was very, very important to the Jews. He's tracing the bloodline. It was a huge deal. And he goes on and on and on, and then he ends it this way in verse 16. It says, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. I want you to recognize this. This entire genealogy, all 30,000 names that Ashley read, comes down to this one singular point. But at the end of the day, you have to recognize that all of this work leads to Joseph, and you know that he's not actually Jesus' dad, right? Like, I don't want to turn this into like an episode of Mari or something like that, but if you did the DNA test, it would not show up Joseph. So why in the world would we need to know his entire genealogy? Why is that even important to the story of Jesus? Why would Matthew waste so much pen and ink or papyrus and whatever they were using back then to tell this story that ends with Joseph? Let's go ahead and preview next week. By the way, uh, Christmas in April. Uh, tacky sweaters are appropriate, uh, so be ready for next week. We are doing it. We're leaning into it hard. However you want to celebrate privately would be completely all right. Uh, like I said, costumes, sweaters, it's completely fine. But in verse 18, it says this. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When the, his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, not from Joseph. So, why all this Joseph business? Why all of this lead up just to land with Joseph? I want to say maybe, just maybe, that Jesus didn't just do radical things with our ideas, with our perceptions of who he is and who he should be, but with our ideas of fatherhood as well. I mean, this notion of who he was blood related to, clearly did not apply to his relationship with Joseph, yet it was worth connecting them. I mean, the entire point of doing a genealogy is showing whose blood you have, how you are blood related to someone. And then it ends with a broken connection. I mean, for just a moment, step outside of this story that you know so well, and all of a sudden it's not a story of Jesus and the Virgin Mary and all that. It's a story of a man who knew his wife was having a baby that wasn't his, but decided to raise it anyway. This is a story of adoption. How about that for a confusing and surprising Jesus? After all this weaving and winding, he's got David, he's got prostitutes, he's got all these crazy people in his story. After all of that, it lands with his adoptive father, Joseph. I think what's actually happening here is a little bit of foreshadowing. Just a little bit of teaser. That one day we, as followers of Jesus, would be adopted as sons and daughters of God. Paul says it this way to the letter, or uh, to the Galatians in chapter 4, verses 4 through 5. It says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, 
to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now check that out. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, that is Mary, comma, born under the law. So saying both of those things are happening at the same time, in some ways represented here, right? Like the law is traced through this lineage that Jesus has. These were the people to whom Jesus gave, or God gave the law to. So simultaneously, God sent forth his son that was born of a woman, born of the, under the law to redeem those, that's you and me, who were under the law. All of those who fail at the law, who don't live up to God's good plan for the universe, who sin, who are broken, who are chasing after false gods, who are running away from God, all of those who are outside of the law or who are like buried under it, it says those are the ones that Jesus came to redeem. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. And how does he do it? So, or, or why does he do it? So that we might receive adoption as sons. Adoption is right here in the heart of the gospel. That Jesus, born of women under an adoptive father, was also the child of humanity and the subject to the law. He was the child of humanity, but lived as a child of God. Perfect, sinless, always seeking to please his father exactly the way that we cannot live. So that we who live like children of humanity, constantly chasing after false gods, constantly breaking God's heart with our sinful behavior and our rebellion against him, might actually be adopted as his son. Do you see the symmetry here? That God sends his son down to earth to be adopted by Joseph so that he might live a perfect life, so that we might be adopted by God? Jesus was adopted so that we might be adopted. This is the beautiful sign of the Trinity that in our triune God, we have two different, or we have multiple different pieces. We have the adoptive father who rescues us and puts us into family. And we have the son who is taken in by another and knows what it feels like to be adopted, to have an adopted father. That God capturing both of those things is able to meet us where we are. I talked earlier about the most obvious takeaway that Jesus is seldom what we expect, even though he's what we desire most. But I also want you to chew on this idea. I want you to chew on it just a little bit, just because we're here at this moment. You know, we preach through Scripture at Dwell Church. We very, very seldom sort of give ourselves time and freedom. We want to be bound and bonded to God's Word. We give ourselves very little freedom to just branch off on some sort of random topical kind of idea. So I want you to chew on this today. First off, I think Scripture is telling us that maybe fatherhood is more about who is there than who is related. All of this bloodline boiling down to one point of Joseph and then having this disconnection should tell us something about what fatherhood actually is. And if that's true, then maybe one of the best things that you can do to serve the kingdom of God is to be a mom or a dad to kids who, like Jesus, will do great things for the kingdom of God but may not be blood-related to you. And maybe... Just like in Jesus' heritage, maybe all the twists and turns 
and weird sort of shifts in your life that have led you to being where you are right now might be bringing you to a point where you are ready to step into a kid's life and be a father or mother to them, to a child that needs it. Maybe, maybe the gospel story is actually built around and begins with an adoption. And that you can actually live that. Not just like know it. Not just be like, oh, that was nice for Jesus, but actually believe it. Actually experience it. Actually show it to others. I believe that one of the best ways that you can show the gospel to someone else might be through foster care and adoption. Right now in our country, there are half a million children, almost half a million children in the foster care system nationwide. What's really sad about that is that through the pandemic, those numbers have actually gone down, which actually might seem like a good thing, like more kids are staying home with their parents. But it probably more likely means is that more often than not, the people that are mandatory reporters in their life, like teachers and doctors and stuff like that, we're actually seeing them less often, which means less cases get reported, which means more and more of these kids are stuck in bad home environments with no one to rescue them out of it. To enter into the foster care system, you must have been removed from your family because the family has, deemed, has been deemed unfit for parenting. This could be for drug abuse, neglect, all forms of abuse, and a host of other reasons that would just make your stomach turn. All of these things are reasons why children might get pulled out from their family. So what happens when this child is taken from this environment and put into a loving and caring home? child in the foster care system that gets picked up by a healthy foster care family goes from wondering if they are loved to knowing that they are loved. They go from wondering if they will be fed to being cared for in all kinds of ways. They go from wondering if they will be abused or harmed to knowing that they are safe. They go from wondering to if whether or not they will live to see tomorrow to feeling secure. They go from wondering if they are loved at all to knowing that they are loved unconditionally. And isn't that a gospel picture? Like, isn't that the most beautiful picture of the gospel right there? Because it's not just that like Jesus dies on the cross and saves us for our sin, like that time that you stole that pencil from the store when you were in third grade or something like that. He actually rescues us from a world that tells us that we don't deserve love. He rescues us from a world of believing that you have to sin and lie and cheat to actually get ahead. He rescues us from a world where we believe that we are not worth anything, that we do not have value, and he puts us, he puts us into his family. It says that he adopts us as sons. God brings us home and gives us a new reality. Man, and if you've never experienced that in your life, I would love nothing more than to talk to you about that afterwards. But I think many of us in this room have experienced that before in our lives. And so what I am asking you today is just to consider what it would look like 
to actually put that gospel into a physical life, to put it into rewriting someone else's story, and especially with a kid that needs it most. Now, this is not going to be a good idea for everybody. Um, Some of you guys have too many kids already. I understand it, right? I mean, you know, you don't need any extra. Some of you guys, though, a lot of us in this room, in fact, are are young. Maybe you don't have any kids. uh, Maybe not any kids yet, whatever that looks like. And, And there's still reasons why this might not be a good route for you. There's still plenty of reasons. I, I, believe me, we are not throwing out this expectation for everyone at Dwell Church. All I'm asking for you today is actually consider, consider what it would look like to sort of fully live this gospel story in your own life by writing it into a child's life. Jesus came to adopt us because we did not have the power and authority to save ourselves. So he has to step in and rescue us to make him, make us his own. If you want to know more about how you can engage, uh, you can come and talk to me afterward. I would love nothing more than uh, to talk with you about this kind of stuff. We're very, very passionate about it. Uh, I actually have a book for uh, one lucky person, the first person that wants to ask for it. It's called uh, Adopted into the Family of God by Russell Moore. Um, And it's a really, really great resource if you're at all interested about any of this Um, Here's uh, four ways, actually, that you can engage if you're curious. I'm just going to hit these really, really fast. These are super, super practical. First, you can foster or adopt a child. There are, as I said, about half a million people or half a million children in the country. Uh, I think the number in 2020, so it's going to be a little bit different than this. This is an old number. The number of 2020 was like seven to 8,000 children in the state of Colorado that needed uh, foster care. And uh, many of them will end up, as many as like one-fifth of them will end up needing adoption one day. Uh, There's also about 400 children. Again, this is from 2020, about 400 children that need adoption right now in the state of Colorado that you could actually adopt if you feel like you're in a place where you're ready for that. Um, Sarah and I have partnered with an organization called Hope and Home that we really value a lot, and we can talk to you more about that. So, man, if you think this is the route for you. Now, Sarah and I still have not uh, fostered yet. We're still in, like, this training phase. And we started thinking and dreaming and praying about this. God laid it on our heart probably seven years ago. So, I mean, I understand this might be a long journey for many of you, but if you're at all interested, man, we would love, love, love to talk to you about it. If you feel like that's not something that you can take on right now, which is completely understandable, another option is you can actually become respite certified. There it is. You can become respite certified through Hope and Home uh, and actually provide respite care for a foster family. Um, And so what that means is you step in. Maybe you're taking the kids for a weekend. Maybe you're just stepping in and providing some babysitter. Uh, help there. Um, That is a really, really meaningful and beautiful way to serve foster care families and uh, children who are in foster care. The third way is through uh, an organization that we partner with through Compassion International. Now, I know many of you guys are like, man, I cannot keep a kid. They will die under my care. This is a bad plan. Uh, The great thing about Compassion International is that you will probably never meet these kids. So uh, we have a little boy. His name is Mauricio, and he has the same name as me, and we adopted him through Compassion International about 
probably eight years ago. It's been a long time now. What this means is you sort of support uh, his well-being financially, and it goes through an organization called Compassion International, which is very, very trustworthy. Uh, you can check them out on all the sort of like uh, charity sort of checker sites and stuff like that. Um, they give this money to, or they uh, use this money to support his well-being by keeping him fed, clothed, he's getting education, and most importantly, he's actually hearing about Jesus. In two weeks, I believe, uh, in the second week of May, we are actually going to have a speaker from Compassion International, someone who was a Compassion International child, come and speak at Dwell Church to talk to us about uh, what that has looked like in her life, so you won't want to miss that. I believe it is May 13th, if that's a Sunday. If not, then I just completely made it up and just be here every Sunday in May and you'll see her. Um, but go ahead and be thinking about that. I think it's like 30-something dollars a month, um, which is really, really, really not expensive when you compare it to all the other expenses in your life. It's two uh, video accounts that you probably don't, two streaming accounts, and you can't watch them both at the same time anyway. Believe me, you've forgotten that Amazon Prime even exists. Go ahead and take it off. You don't need it, right? Um, so that's coming up in a couple of weeks, uh, especially... If you have someone that you're like, you know, married to and like to make decisions with or getting close to that, something like that, go ahead and be talking about it now so that over the next two weeks when she comes, you can actually take home a child's card and sort of commit to sponsoring them right there. We will have some of those cards in our gathering, and um, yeah, you can check that out. Um, the final way, and here's what I'm going to ask you to do and actually model for you uh, and with you right now, is actually just to pray. Actually just to pray. I believe it's James that says to us that uh, pure ministry, authentic, meaningful ministry and caring is serving orphans and widows, is caring for them, is loving them. And so what I'm going to invite you to do right now is just join me in praying for all of the children <clears throat> across our world, across our country, across our state, and right here in our own city, who maybe are in the foster care system, maybe waiting to be adopted, maybe waiting to be rescued out of the environment that they're currently in. And I'm going to pray, and I'm going to invite you to pray, not only for those children themselves, but also for people. As Jesus said, for laborers to be sent out into the harvest. For people to step into their lives and rewrite it with the power of the gospel. As I pray, band, you guys can come on up. Would you pray with me? <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for your word. God, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for Matthew, for his wisdom, for your Holy Spirit guidance and putting this word in his heart that he might share it for us, with us. God, I want to thank you for the truths found even in your boring parts of scripture, God. I want to thank you for the beauty that we can find in your word. God, I want to thank you for your gospel and the way that it has shaped and changed my life and many lives here in this room, God. And I am asking for children right now God, who need to feel that love, who need to feel that truth, who need to feel that unconditional gift that you give to us, need to feel it in some small way by being brought into a new family, God. So we pray for children who are in the foster care system right now, God, that you would find them families, that you would connect them in. God, we pray for children waiting to be adopted, that you would find them their forever family, God, that they might be able to connect. God, I pray for uh, children right now who are in harmful situations that have not been found out, they've not been rescued yet. God, I pray that you 
you would make it happen so that they find a good home, a healthy home, or that you would heal and shape their parents so that they might be able to better serve and love them, God. And finally, I I pray, God, that you would raise up men and women here in this room from all kinds of backgrounds, with all kinds of family shapes right now, God, that you would raise up men and women in this room who might say, yes, God, I will step in and serve and love a kid that needs it, God. I pray that you would raise up adoptive families from this room, that you would raise up foster families from this room, from this family, God, that you have given us. I pray that you would raise up respite workers. You would raise up people who are willing to commit to serve children across the world through things like Compassion International. God, I pray that you would place a burden on our hearts, that your adopted son came down and made a way for us to be included as sons and daughters of you, God. Help us to make a way for that to happen in our own family. God, we love you. We trust you. We thank you for loving us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope it brought you closer to Jesus and more in touch with the world around you. Being a Christian in today's culture can be hard. Fortunately, he gives us the gift of community through his church. So we would love to invite you to join us for one of our Sunday morning gatherings or for one of our weekly small groups. All the details you need can be found on our website, dwelldenver.org.